You yeah. think Rush Limbaugh is not using his anymore? Can we borrow his? I think we could take his. <laughs> Maybe we pitch our show to them. <laughs> we'll uh, we'll offer a conservative edge so that we can sneak in. <laughs> what do you mean offer? I think we're already there. I, we <laughs> I mean, with all the Nazi talk, yeah, we're definitely on our way. <laughs> we fit right into their programming. <laughs> Yeah, how do we start this? <laughs> do we? How do we start a podcast? Uh, let's see. Uh, hey, Calvin, you know uh, Twitter, right? Yeah, I heard of it. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, there's the you know it's this place where people can have these thoughts that they can send out, and uh, and other people can see these thoughts, and uh, sometimes they're not good thoughts, and uh, those not good thoughts get a lot of traction uh, most of the time. And so then everyone has something to, to talk about and go about because they're all obsessing over this not good thought. It's almost uh, like the Twitter should be curated. Yeah, like that. I think that's really what we need nowadays is that social media should be curated for for interests here, you know, and, and someone should be deciding some kind of Twitter overlord, a Twitter czar, if you will, to pick out the good thoughts from the bad thoughts i think these uh nazi docs are having the wrong influence but um, <laughs> go on <laughs> yeah we can we can call them the 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 minister of, <laughs> of thoughts no um, um yeah so well these bad thoughts this today actually uh so this week whenever people will be listening uh have wormed their way into film twitter yet again uh and by yet again i mean Probably for the twentieth time this week. I don't. I think that's just like the natural state of film Twitter, and occasionally someone will have a good thought on there. Uh, yeah, I was I was tweeting with someone there who I follow about uh, how this is like kind of just the direction of, of discourse. Like, it's, particularly if you notice in the past five years, I think the cult of ignorance and the you know inflation of uh, inflammatory you know, uh, opinions and such online and through social media, it's only really grown, you know, in these, in this last, you know, few years or so. And that's why this keeps happening. And, you know, it's, it's just a, a circle, an Ouroboros of, you know, completion where if, you know, one shitty, you know, opinion leads into the next and the next, and it trans, it, you know, it transcends film Twitter, of course, it's, you know, that's just all modern discourse currently, is right. that you just have to have, <laughs> A really controversial thought that's backed by you know no founding and you know a complete disregard for anything else and uh boom you're the most trending thing even trolls like scorsese can write for harper and just <laughs> fucking blow up the discourse now is what you're saying yeah and, and here we are back again on on scorsese and his constant attempts to <laughs> let us see more movies the yeah. fiend um He's a the monster. really awful influence trying to uh, make clear that preservation and curation matters online. Wow. <laughs> very controversial take. I can't believe the stuff I've read about it. Um, very, very damaging takes based on what he said, which is just a really beautiful thing about Fellini and how films used to be made and curated and how there's so little variety because, as you said, uh, we've homogenized the system. 
Yeah, oh, that's, I think that was ultimately this point about the streaming services. It was a bit more nuanced this time than uh, Marvel movies aren't cinema. <laughs> which was you another know, great Which take, was, but... yeah, well, which was also, you know, important to note a twisting of the context and words there that, you know, film Twitter just kind of latched onto. But and this time around, like, you know, in discussing Netflix, which again, he, he praised both Netflix and Apple for being able to bring forward his films, The Irishman and Killers of the Flower Moon in that piece. But ultimately, it was about how, you know, the approach to monetizing films such as this, where they're viewed strictly as content, which is they've been labeled over the past, you know, several years or so, uh, and just putting them like out there and making them to be consumed and looking at them as, as products like that removes any kind of, you know, personal impact or, you know, uh, attempts at, uh, curating them specifically for an audience and, and the kind of approach to art which uh, again like even if you want to look back in time you can look at and see is an issue with you know studio systems and such as well like this isn't a new problem inherently but the the issue is is that there isn't like a, a balance of it and eventually by you know boiling everything down to a lowest common denominator by you know approaching filmmaking as a craft of numbers and statistics you're just going to make it all bland and similar across the board because you're going to find what the least you know uh inoffensive thing is with the the broadest appeal and most you know generic reception and you're just going to keep making that you're not going to take as many bold steps you know you're not going to try and find something uh provocative that won't always necessarily succeed it's something we've talked a lot about internally and in our podcast two weeks ago with Pavlos that um, the systems in place are homogenizing things. And even when you get auteur filmmakers, they're still making content effectively for a system where they're going to um, maybe be shown next to, um, well, I mean, not that there isn't a place for it, but they're going to be shown next to reality TV competition shows like their competition with cat videos, as Scorsese would say, but we haven't differentiated. So I think what Pavlos got to a couple of weeks ago that Amazon might have a clearer way. Like very few movies, they stand out as events on the service, right. but then and it's like TV focus and they understand content's content. Well, the other thing you have to consider as well is that even Scorsese himself is a form of content. He's a proven success within the system here. People consistently go to. So even like he's not really a risky venture. Even something like The Irishman is not really a risky venture for Netflix I mean, to undertake. Yeah, it doesn't need to make money either. Netflix needs to bleed, bleed money. I mean, they need to show their shareholders that they're losing money to demonstrate growth. Like, well, and the, and, and they do profit. The other thing is, the and the reason why they have to do things like occasionally seek out a big name filmmaker who does have more of a penchant for, you know, artistic vision like Scorsese is because they need to keep that appeal of theirs broad. They need to have people like me and you here who are not interested in, you know, Night Before Christmas 700 or whatever, who, who want to see a bigger prestige film. It's the same reason why they picked up The Other Side of the Wind and then proceeded yeah. to do nothing with it, you know, because it got me to fucking watch the movie and stick yeah, I around i think that's what he's talking about like if you had a service like criterion in charge of a netflix catalog you'd well, constantly have other side of the wind recommended to you right well, like, that's the thing is that the, the the difference is not that netflix isn't funding a lot of these projects because they are and they are yeah. they, they have a very wide net they're casting the problem is is the way in which they're presenting it they've made a completely level playing field for everything 
on the surface because the other thing is that when what he goes into is that it isn't actually a level playing field because it is curated by an algorithm it's like there's stuff literally being thrown at you from a numerical system and what netflix itself wants you to see and of course netflix is going to lean more towards a lot of the stuff that they themselves produce and you know the the big name things that they want to drive the discourse on and so it's not curated in a sense of for a particular basis or things that are important for people to see on an artistic level it's curated on a business level right which which again only seeks to you know level the the interest and flatten out you know the the appeal even more across the board i've heard arguments like well maybe the next scorsese is just like boiling at netflix but kind of like my ideology about that is how do you grow how do you have a taxi driver that still exists in 30 years if it's it's buried in content within a week right all right. Well, I'm also going to take issue with this idea of like another Scorsese because again, yeah. that's just homogenizing the playing field more. You're <laughs> exactly. making everyone like like that, which is what you don't want. You know, this idea of a next Scorsese, you know, a next Spielberg or whatever it is, you know, back when it was like the next Orson Welles or whoever, you know, you're just making the same thing. That's all people are always looking for. You want the same thing, but people don't actually want the same thing. We think we want the same thing. We think we want comfort, stability, you know, sameness, but we don't we want something that's going to challenge us provoke our thoughts and wow us in different ways we've never been wowed before yeah absolutely and i feel like netflix doesn't have a lot of opportunity for that and if they do we might not notice it do do you recall the last netflix project you really enjoyed like like really (laughs) like took you off your you know seat like took uh knocked your socks off god <laughs> like knocked my socks off like you mean like superlative not not just like i liked ma rainey's black bottom and that's a great performance so, something like you that, felt right? was was like unique something that touched you in a way that that something else hadn't before that's something that really stuck with you even just something like that that, that you're still hanging on to yeah it's still marriage story other side of the winds the the meyerwitz story just those like three things really stand out as what I'm so hearing. so Irish two man. two bombach I mean. films scorsese and orson <laughs> wells is what i'm hearing yeah. so uh yeah not not really innovators at the forum um i mean i'm stuff like cuties i think is really worthwhile <laughs> to put out there uh, we have a whole podcast on on that a separate podcast um I, I think something like that's challenging and that's right well but even then the, l- look at what happens when you know you put out something that's maybe a little more controversial you know uh, something challenging even and see how people respond before they even get their hands on it i like malcolm and marie i've come to find out nobody else does though um Ke- Ke- i mean our our good friend kevin i believe enjoyed he it loved quite it. a bit yeah yeah but it is a bit more controversial because uh you know critics can't take uh, criticism apparently <laughs> um i and people act like it's such a pretentious thing to do, to do like a self-commentary on critics. I feel like artists have been doing that as long as there's been art. So. Speaking of uh, pretension, uh, have you heard the news that uh, everyone who watches old movies are pretentious? <laughs> uh, no black and whites are any good. That's such no, a confusing Nothing before thing. 1975, you know, anything old it immediately makes you, you know, elitist. It's no wonder nobody listens to these podcasts. <laughs> it makes sense i guess we need to cover something uh more straightforward what's what, what's what do we have today we have we have a lot of content to cover today both so old much and new we have the uh, seattle film critics awards uh judas and the black messiah a hot new movie 
we have your documentary, uh, Always a Secret and a Pleasure Once We Get There. And I have a trash heap of new documentaries from this year. <laughs> and we go back to the 40s with Beauty and the Beast. We're, we're going all time spans. Uh, we have all years represented here. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, I guess since there's a lot to get to, let's uh, let's start. Uh, you know, new movies apparently are the only ones that we can talk about without being pretentious. So uh, let's hear about the Seattle Film Critics Awards, you know. I'm sure there's not non-pretentious works in there to discuss. Yeah. Um, well, let's see. <laughs> I wouldn't say we've uh, selected anything that's quite pretentious. Uh, so our big hit, I think we discussed last week, we, we released our final results this week um, was the Mariners documentary that won the documentary part and was kind of a last minute push among all of us to uh, get that up the ranks that he had a huge uh, viewing online. Um, Good numbers for us. That's that's, uh, good to hear as well. And that it smashed out uh, the last dance as well for you guys. So (laughs) Michael Jordan is 0 for 2 against baseball. Um, There's uh, a lot of good stuff I think happened. We could just go over some of the main categories there. Yeah, I think Um, you guys did some, made some interesting strides this year. And you had some really great picks. And I think it's important to note as well that it was a little harder uh, this year, obviously, to kind of have to seek out a bit more and take more effort on you guys to find the films that are worth praising because they were out there. They were there. They still came. It just, yeah. it was it was a lot more difficult and it did take, you know, the resources of your, you know, uh, association to, to really get a hold of a lot of them. So, you know, Absolutely. very fortunate that you guys were able to do that. Even with that done, um, I'd say Nomadland really swept the competition as well as Minari. Uh, Nomadland and Minari were the stories at the moment. Uh, Minari had the most nominations, but Nomadland won the most awards. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, uh, and <clears throat> sorry. Um, yeah, both uh, I know were very high films for you uh, in particular. I know some of them are just coming around, like Minari, I believe, is available now through my uh, local theater here to rent. Yeah. But uh, Nomadland should be out next week. Um, mm hmm. But yeah, both uh, very worthwhile films, it sounds like, for people to check out. You know, um, Minari, I think, is of particular interest to me. Again, the, the continuing trend of uh, Asian-American stories uh, being made here in native languages. And I think the, the great success that they're having, you know, in this market here, uh, despite the, the obvious language barrier that uh, our market's slowly overcoming. And I think that's uh, really nice to see, you know, a, a change in the wind there at least for the moment. I think it's pretty great looking at like the trend of how we are um, recognizing some different directors. It's not just white old men, right? Like uh, we have Lee Isaac Chung for Minari and then Chloe Zhao, a Chinese director for a Chinese American director for Nomadland. So uh, I I feel like after Parasite, uh, some of the walls broke down and uh, we're starting to do some more interesting things. Um, uh, Also for Minari, I think a special note of interest is that we got rid of the foreign film category and swapped it for a best film not in the English language, which is a hard title fit onto a slide on Twitter. Yeah. But I think socially, I think it's the best thing we did. I'm very proud of that. I, I agree with you completely. I like this. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm very much behind this breaking down of the barrier, this this isolation barrier that I think American audiences have that there's, you know, domestic films and there's foreign films. Uh, and the more work we can do to kind of, you know, uh, dispel that myth, 
you know, the more open, you know, we can, the more we can open the door to a whole world of cinema out there that we're, you know, excluding out of ignorance. Uh, and even such a small act as just changing a name like that and, you know, making it more apparent, the the kind of difference I think is a, a wonderful step in that direction. I agree the name could be a little better, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, we got. it's it's definitely leagues better than foreign film, leagues better than like non-American. Uh, you know, it yeah. is kind of interesting <laughs> that, that the first time you guys do it, it, it is American film, but, you know, it was bound to happen. I think that that qualifies and, and it also is just kind of dependent on what the market allows as well, you know, more dependent on what can become available in this specific region rather than, you know, uh, the, the lack thereof out there. If Minari has to be the cause for change, I think it's a good cause too. Um, again, uh, like with everything, I think when it comes down to these, it's again, it's, it all comes back to curation and how things get here and what is available. It's not, you know, necessarily that you guys, chose to shut out and also it was one of those things where like there's absolutely opportunity for minari to be the best of the year even up against yeah. you know an entire you know like world of other films i mean it is one of the best and uh, we're still celebrating a diverse and important voice within there and uh between minari i think it was lucky grandma was the other one that was a u.s film um mm -hmm. in another language last year in chinese uh so there, there were a few opportunities last year for that kind of thing. I know we had like back your out and uh, another round where the two I was kind of rooting for. I voted for another round, but I'm very happy for Minari. Yeah. Also, uh, Stephen Yun's career really uh, blowing up lately. Yeah. Uh, he's going to get all kinds of roles. I mean, he's kind of getting away from uh, the traditional Asian American casting that kind of goes down and playing all kinds of interesting parts. Uh, interesting to me that the two here that, really one or different ideas about American dreams, right? Like a, a new takes on it with Nomadland with Chloe Zhao uh, giving uh, kind of the mythology of the West to nomads that roam around in vans. Um, I think that's pretty special. And um, Minari about uh, not just the inaccessibility of the American dream, but uh, how a family could kind of cope together and how there might still be one and that there is still promise in that. Yeah, those sound... Uh... Again, like very interesting to get more perspectives on American ideals through the the rest of the population who you know are, are just now really kind of coming into the fold in terms of getting a voice in American cinema, which is a uh, definitely wonderful to see. Uh, is there any other major uh, categories or wins that you wanted to highlight? Um, there's, I, I was very happy with animation. I had no idea that Wolf Walkers would uh, do it. After rewatching Soul, I decided that Wolf Walker is a better movie and changed my vote last minute so i'm very proud that we honored a cartoon saloon instead of just the new pixar which uh, i thought more and more about that they don't need another award yeah again like let's keep working to move away from homogenation and disney has certainly dominated you know all animation for a long 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 time now and to a point where lots of people aren't even aware like aside from yeah. i don't know like ghibli and Leica, that there are other animation studios out there absolutely and and so to have a uh, um cartoon saloon uh represented like that uh and again after a track record of of noble uh, notable films as well prior to this what uh the secret I, of the kells uh song of the sea i thought i thought they did song of the sea i just didn't want to be wrong <laughs> um, yeah yeah they, had, yeah, they so, had a few interesting things breadwinner was that also them i think they were involved so to, to have them recognized as well shows that the field is really opening up more and again that there is more to animation than just a very you know 
uh, standard look that Disney has given to all their films. Again, not that it's a bad interpretation per se, yeah. but you know, uh, singular ver- visions are, are always inherently limiting. So opening I mean, up the, you know, for more, I think is uh, always great to do. I want, uh, I think we all want to see variety. Like Minari, uh, some years Disney might just produce the most just on the virtue that they have the most money to put into animation studios and like sure. Coco might be the best animation of a year. Fine. But I think uh, Soul, I'm glad it won on the soundtrack, but I'm glad we also moved towards something that's expressive, more closer to a hand-drawn style, something that looks like it's made by humans. Right. And again, not that computer animation is inherently bad, but we, we always want variety. We want to see yeah. some difference. Again, especially when it's been very singular for a long time. So seeing something uh, more diverted from the standard is always uh, a pleasure. I think the important thing about combining these two topics is that awards are a kind of curation. What we do on the podcast is also curation. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the happiest uh, I was was that uh, Daniel Kuluya ended up winning supporting, which uh, I, I was going for Paul Ritchie and Sound of Metal, but I'm also very happy with Juice and the Black Messiah. Just that it exists and uh, th- is something that we can curate. Yeah, and and both of us because. Uh... I actually saw a new movie in the beginning of this year. <laughs> shockingly enough, we both saw one. Um, <laughs> shockingly enough, and Shaka King is that is that the yeah yeah, yeah. That's a, that is his name Shaka King. This is his uh, sophomore feature, Judas and the Black Messiah. Uh, this kind of biopic about uh, Fred Hampton and uh, William O'Neill. Uh, Hampton, of course, being uh, the leader of the Chicago chapter of the the Black Panthers before uh, the FBI and Chicago police coordinated an uh, assassination on him, uh, which was uh, perpetrated by uh, William O'Neill, you know, being a inside spy for the the FBI and, uh, you know, locating and, you know, giving information on Hampton, you know, ultimately having a hand in his assassination as well. A very powerful ensemble and performance. I think this is one where all the pieces of this are really important, and it's good that we could tell this story in a time where Black Panthers is high to their awareness, maybe globally. So uh, good to get back to uh, some of their more formative and uh, important early stories. Oh, well, and it's another. It's uh, the film is in. Uh, I think one of the crucial things about it is that it's in conversation with the the, the civil rights movements of today as well. Yeah. You know, talking and echoing the themes of you know that uh, people are out protesting in the streets over with the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, particularly when it comes to you know uh, the prejudice of the the law enforcement uh, and seeing how it was handled in, in the 1960s in a more you know aggressive and uh, attention demanding kind of way but also you know painting the picture of that history with the more detailed strokes that our history books have not given us until this time uh i don't know about you but certainly growing up the the black panthers were always kind of depicted as this militant fascist you know uh aggressive anti uh american force uh to to me you know uh in in lessons it was very always broadly portrayed but to, to see that the the calls they had for for equality stretch not just beyond the in, the empowerment of the black community but really the embrace of all of you know the, the the country and you know bring together and they highlight that in 
uh, Judas and the Black Messiah through Fred Hampton's movements to make coalitions with the other various movements around, particularly the Rainbow Coalition gets mentioned, but uh, not really as much detail as perhaps we would, we would like because the story is more focused on the the duality of the relationship between Hampton and O'Neill and the, the kind of uh, Shakespearean-like uh, you know downfall, the, the tragedy of that arc. Yeah, it's not quite documentary. I mean, you get like the part where they're up there on the stage and doing the thing with the Rainbow Co- Coalition, but it's it's like one scene. Everyone yeah. wants. Uh, yeah, it's just that one sequence. Hopefully, it, it's it's a moment that provokes people to go and look into it more and actually do some reading about Hampton and the Rainbow Coalition and the Black Panther, you know, organization in general. But uh, you know, as far as like, it's it's a very broad education on that, which I think is informative for people who are not initiated on the subject. But uh, is not necessarily, you know, uh, an, an in-depth education is something like a documentary would be. But it's not aiming to be either. No, it's very important that it gets to the other things, which I, I still don't even really know if I knew what you just said about the Black Panther, that, that they were out there like trying to feed the children and uh, yep. doing so much more beyond Black rights that literally just such an important figurehead in our country as Fred Hampton totally deserves this treatment. And this is the kind of... Uh, kind of biography i'd like to see more on screen uh, something it was socially useful too it was really interesting watching the film right at the the, the period of uh just coming off of martin luther king jr day mm-hmm. and uh you know the beginning of black history month and seeing uh lots of like politicians and people from across the the you know both parties and whatnot echo these sentiments of the the black leaders of the, the 1960s in the very kind of vacuous and and platitudinal way that we typically associate, like, uh, for me at least, you know, watching uh, how Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy has been twisted and contorted and, and learning about his true beliefs and stances and stuff over time, as opposed to what we're educated about through, you know, our, our youth is really enlightening uh, to see just how we, you know, we've made him a kind of false prophet uh, messiah for equality uh, as opposed to uh, equity you know, in our country and needing to restore the, the balance to two things. And the same thing happens here with Hampton, like, and it was really funny just like watching people, like literally uh, some of the senators quoting his, his talks about, you know, fighting racism with, uh, you know, equality and, you know, forgiveness and, and such, but not, you know, going on to the rest of their quote in which he, he talks about fighting capitalism with socialism and, you know, redistribution of uh, power and wealth and such, which, you know, is a topic that's extremely relevant today that is coming up in a lot of, you know, political discourse, but, you know, it's still a very kind of hot topic that people are reluctant to embrace. I think we, we both liked it a lot and got a lot out of it. Both of us recommend for Black History Month and uh, even onward. Just, just as a, yeah, as a, great. as a, really great film i think as well it's just incredibly well directed i think the story uh you know the balance of that and going back and forth that during i think director director shaka king does a really great job of compelling you with the narrative and of course both performances from daniel kaluuya and lakeith stanfield are, are are really in tune with their characters and they create a great dichotomy there uh you know d- definitely it's <laughs> it's probably the best film i've watched this month as far as like including things i've watched of my more own interest in older films so i don't know maybe film twitter is right <laughs> of our awards season uh, contenders i think this was probably your favorite i don't i know you didn't see a ton from last year i mean year, this is but... this is like <laughs> all the films i watched from last year were, were pretty uh 
middling. You're saying it's better than Sonic the Hedgehog, though. Yeah, definitely, definitely better than Sonic the Hedgehog, which you know I know is uh, quite the bar to leap over. But you got to believe me. Just just check it out. And we'll have your review up Monday, I believe. Yes, Um, I I did write a review for for this one. I've come out of the woodworks too type up some thoughts as well so if you're interested to hear more of my opinions on it check out the review on our website on monday um other than that i think you have your uh, your new documentary as well yeah um speaking of uh dismantling the mists of uh you know fascist uh ideals uh i dipped back into uh, nazi culture again this week inevitably i know <laughs> inevitably i i knew it would happen eventually yes. Yeah, it's only been take, a week, David. I know, I know. It didn't take long, but uh, I, I was inspired by our discussion last week on uh, to be or not to be uh, to put on this documentary I've kind of had my eye on for a little bit called uh, "The Last Laugh" from uh, 2016, and um, it's not uh, the the Murnau film from 1924, though I think evoking the title of a famous you know German film. Uh, is an interesting choice as well. I don't know if it was intentional or not, but the film to is laugh essentially or not to laugh, right? Yeah, the film. Uh, I think it's kind of deceptive in its in its advertising. You know, it it kind of sneaks in there. It seems like it'll be kind of very fun talk and more on the subject matter. Uh, it's it's basically like these very influential big name Jewish comedians like uh, Rob Reiner and Mel Brooks and Sarah Silverman and such weigh in on, you know, what it's, you know, like, like, where's the line in terms of joking about controversial topics, like Nazis in particular, Uh, the poster, you know, I think it kind of catches your eye. I don't know if I can show you here, but it's like, (laughs) it's got, it's very, very simple design. It's, you know, just basically juxtaposes the silhouette of Hitler with that of Chaplin. Mm -hmm. And so you're like, oh, okay. So we're joking about Nazis. Like, you know, we're talking about what it's like to make fun of, of Nazis, particularly like, and it opens with Mel Brooks and he's like, he's got his comb and it's like oh i can do this you know heil hitler and, and stuff and talking about you know what it means to get into that topic and defang the nazis and take back some power by making fun of them but it's also about the perspective of humor mainly about the holocaust and why right. that's a harder line to cross nowhere in the advertising does it talk about going into the topic of the holocaust but it is a lot about the Holocaust in that it actually has um, several survivors of the Holocaust weighing in with their perspectives, uh, their opinions on on how they got through things, going over their memories and how harsh it was. Like there's whole sections of it that are really de- devoted to like devastating footage, uh, you know, pictures and stuff of the the Holocaust and people regurgitating their their memories of it and how horrifying it was and it's this gets darker every minute <laughs> i know it's it, and, and it bounces between that and like showing clips from the producers where they're doing Busby wow. berkeley numbers is not season it's like oh I'm, I'm getting a little bit of both here uh but it's and it's really interesting to get that perspective i like how it has it, it gives different voices to certain people like uh, what they have a main Holocaust survivor that kind of follow. And there's a sections of the film that are devoted to them kind of looking over clips of, of comedians making jokes about Nazis and the Holocaust and such. And sometimes they, you know, that this person laughs at them, they find they're funny, but some jokes are like, I don't think that's funny. That's not humorous to me. What's funny about the, the Holocaust like that. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and they, they cover a very a wide range of topics. You know, people like Carlin and Lenny Bruce, you know, make appearances in terms of talking about controversial comedians who talk about tough subject matters. Uh, yeah, I think and, looking at Carlin and Lenny Bruce, you could probably find out what is okay to joke about and moreover, who can joke. <laughs> well, it's just interesting how things have changed and, and how things are approached differently. Like the, the clips they use of Lenny Bruce are definitely a little more like, ooh, you know, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know if that's his, you know, uh, Wouldn't play today. today. But you see how, you know, how he provoked discussion and, you know, pushed boundaries in his time, certainly, and the importance of that. But, yeah, some of it's uh, really heavy stuff, like hearing about uh, the, the one survivor and how oh, there, there was one section where she, like, uh, when she went to revisit Germany, she found, you know, she went and found these documents about her sister that she was separated from and how when she was at this hospital uh, that, that she was experimented on when she died wow. there and she found the doctor who did that and confronted him about it and essentially said that uh, afterwards they couldn't let her go and, and talk about you know what what happened at the facilities so they they killed her which is just fucking horrifying and and there's a lot of moments like that in there but it's also sprinkled again like i said with the commentary of the likes of sarah silverman making you know holocaust jokes and then a talking head about her talking about her approach and and how you can come from that and there's also some perspective about what it's the difference between like a, a jewish comedian approaching that and like a non-jewish comedian making jokes about such things and why you know there's a a different kind of uh, approach to that and how it works. And it even gets into uh, more modern like ideas, like joking about 9-11, you know, for instance, is, is this kind of, it rears up to towards the end. Overall, I found it uh, really good in terms of how it covered the topic, you know, the perspectives it gave and the way in which the line is not always clear, but why it's important that we have people who are willing to engage with the boundary and try and challenge our perception of what can and cannot be talked about. Because ultimately, the the comedy is a, is a, a door into confronting these these very difficult topics and, you know, approaching them, you know, with, with a attempted understanding. It, it opens the door to it, even if it's sometimes not the most comfortable thing for us to embrace and um you know, a so lot of times humor it's just discomfort right like uh, there are some ways the things that we fear the most or that are hardest to talk about sometimes comedy could be the easiest lens to get there yeah. and, and really have that talk and i have to say like even just going back in you know like the clips they have of people like joan rivers making cracks about you know the, the extermination of the jewish people or whatever uh it's still kind of funny in the presentation yeah. like like ultimately like just going over and hearing them again like and sometimes it's just about the delivery and you know how it can be funny and challenging that and the unexpectedness like there's there's definitely a science to to controversial humor like that or challenging humor and when it works you know it works really well but they are you know and, and the thing they emphasize over and over is that if you're gonna make a, a joke like that an inflammatory joke it's got to be funny. Yeah. It's not funny. It, like you're taking too much of a risk and it's not going to fly. But if it is funny, then all thing all is forgiven because you've achieved what you've, you've set out to with the joke. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I agree that the place there, most, most people would agree as well. And as they do in the doc that uh, there isn't any subject that's untouchable in terms of comedy, but the lines are different for people. It's ultimately up to the interpreter, you know, like in whoever finds what funny, uh, you know, it, it's it's a personal thing. Humor is subjective, of course, but you know it goes both ways as well. Um, but but definitely, you know, 
And, and, and the other thing is that time, they talk a lot about how time is different. Like they talk about Mel Brooks, how he could joke about the Inquisition, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with, with no problems, but a similar subject in terms of the Holocaust, he doesn't feel comfortable talking about because it's much too fresh and relevant. And so what, thought, was, what was that one called again? It's called The Last Laugh from uh, Last 2016. Laugh. Okay. Uh, it, was, it was good. I, I, I definitely... Uh, enjoyed it quite a bit i think it had a lot of interesting perspective it definitely went to a lot more serious topics than i was expecting but i think it handled them very well and the balance was uh you know sufficient it was according to what you needed for for both there well uh from that recommendation i guess we move on to some uh trashy 2021 docs (laughs) wow what a year it's been if if last year was really an important year for documentary where uh, we showcased a lot of new talent and new stories. Then 2021's a banger too. Uh, we're starting out with some some real garbage and a couple that are pretty decent. All right. Well, I'm excited to hear about them. I know a little bit uh, just based on what you've complained to me about in private, but uh, I, I want to hear some about these in, in significant detail. Well, we'll start with the one that I'm a little bit higher on. Uh, you know, Frank Oz, he, he made a little shop of horrors. Um, Derek uh, Della Guido is a magician and in a cinematic tradition, he takes on his uh, traveling act and presents it through Frank Oz. I don't know why he connected to him, but he thought this is the only guy to tell my story, the way that it works on stage. Um, and it plays with cinematic trickery and it's kind of like a F for a fake type deal. Like, what do you actually believe? Um, Bill Gates has said this guy's shows are like, his therapy he's he's shown at uh one of the shows um uh, the guy goes around and tells people about their roles it's all about what role we have with each other and in a situation and using comedy and magic to kind of figure out who we are in any given situation in the stories that we write for ourselves so it's a bit of therapy and a little bit manipulative of the audience but i think uh I think also the best one so far this year. Um, the rest is all pretty downhill from here. Uh, just a couple more that are even worth mentioning. Mentioning. Did I go over uh, some kind of heaven at all? Uh, no, I don't think I've heard that one yet. But if you have, I guess you could go over it again. Since I mean, if I forgot, probably everyone else did too. Sure, it's a Lance Oppenheim's uh, vision of what what it's like to be in a Florida retirement community, uh, the biggest one in the country. Um, they just live among palm trees and in, in like a suspended limbo of life. Uh, it's kind of amusing following these old couples, but also somewhat hopeless. Uh, uh, we There's no real ending, obviously. They, they kind of just end where they began. Um, you see them join clubs. <laughs> there's a club full of people named Susan. Um, <laughs> that's one of the things. Uh, they, it sounds like the, your, your discussion of it kind of reminds me of the mole agent which i watched in review <laughs> oh, really? last year oh yeah just in this time kind of blend of this insight into a retirement community that is kind of filled with eccentricity and comedy but also depression you know yeah. because of the isolation and loneliness like it has a balance of both which is interesting and, and uh humorous and sad at the same time like there's one guy that's been down and out and he kind of just like sleeps around waiting for like a woman from the retirement community to take him in so he could have shelter he just stays outside in his van. They're constantly kicking him out, asking him to leave. It, he's just trying to hook up. And um, what other clubs? There's a, a Jimmy Buffett a Parrot Head Club. 
uh, which one? Head. Yeah, one woman tries to join the parrot head club, trying to make an impression on an older man, an older gentleman, and uh, it, uh, sparks don't really fly. She's just awkward and realizes that she has her own interests and that you can't combine into other people's clubs. So all of it is just kind of what does manufactured happiness look like as an elder person, and uh, where are we sending our family off to once they're uh, done living independently? Um, some interesting questions, but uh, not not a great doc. I mean, it doesn't quite go anywhere. Oh, those, those are the good ones for this year, though, right? <laughs> they sound a little uh, mixed. Yeah. Uh, so I guess I guess the last fine one, bleeding audio. We have an interview up with uh, the director, producer, and a member of the band, the Matches. So uh, that one's kind of cool, but uh, also also not a fantastic doc. Just a talking head one about a band, but not oh, the talking the, the, heads it, band. Right. Important to have those two and uh, having the interview on the site is uh, always grateful. Uh, so go ahead and check that out as well if you're interested. It's really cool because I got the basis in there. He's in the story a lot. I think he did a lot of the animations for the band, which is kind of how they got their uh, word out on like, uh, you know, like local cable. Uh, they started as a band, The Locals in Oakland. I really got into their music, actually. Maybe I'll attach nice. a track at the end of this or maybe in our break here. But uh, I really like the matches. So they should have made it big, but they didn't. Well, uh, they made it to us at least so you know i think that's something one of the most interesting things they didn't go in and record um their album to get royalties on it they forgot that step so they never got Oops. any royalties <laughs> off any of the things so once they stopped touring it was just you know nothing i mean they had these great songs they sound a lot like uh some of the bands they worked with like blink 182 and uh 311 um some 41 that kind of era of california uh punk ska rock stuff uh they're, they're good i like the band a lot more than even some of those contemporaries so check them out um there's framing britney spears <laughs> god uh now we're getting into the trash heap of uh just like celebrity fodder and i've definitely heard about this one uh i've heard that it's as a documentary it's very bad like produced oh, yeah. very bad <laughs> There's no like obvious time frame. It kind of moves through her life and there's really no time mark other than, you know, now Brittany's shaving her head. But what does this all really mean? I mean, we, we don't have any insight because it's so locked down with her father's facility. Uh, we, we obviously can't have any contact with like Brittany's side of the story. So these are mostly assumptions from a fan community that Brittany's suffering and wants out without any confirmation of what this really means to her and free Brittany anyway, I guess, uh, uh, what do you think? I, I don't even know. I, I don't know what to think. I mean, that I think the problem is that the lack of information, you know, makes it hard to form an opinion or think. Uh, so I'm reluctant to, to weigh in on a significant <laughs> yeah. manner here. Like, what's How the situation? You gotta, you gotta catch me up first. Is the documentary, like, do you feel like it's informative enough that I can walk away and have an opinion on the Britney no. Spears situation? I don't think so. Um, uh, not not reasonably i think the most interesting thing it does is shows the interviews back then of older men like talking about her as a 13 year old they're like so uh you have a boyfriend yet you know like every interview questions about her body and her relationship with men which is very right. uncomfortable yeah uh, even like in the 90s looking back at how different it was to how it is now uh, that's kind of shocking so awful the uh terrible documentary um it doesn't give you any new information if you've even i mean i'm not really aware of britney so 
uh, not much new information for me. That's a shame. Well, I'm sure it can't get worse than that. Then it sounds like it's probably the worst that we've got this year. Uh, there's the Tiger Woods documentary. <laughs> I I read the book and uh, nothing really special even to say here. It's just fine. I mean, no new detail past the book. Uh, that one's just uh, uh, kind of shove that one to the side. Uh, then we get to the real trash of the year so far. Oh boy, uh, I feel like a raccoon waiting outside the the restaurant. <laughs> There's no I in threesome. <laughs> God. Um, I think it's the most self-serving doc I've seen in years where a couple decides to catalog their uh, relationship when they decide to bring other people in. Uh, this whole setup sounds like somewhat interesting. Like, let's watch this go exactly how we think it's going to go. And then it does that, um, which, which is my experience. I've had only one friend who this kind of set up his work for uh good for them for showing non-heteronormative relationships and relationships where other ideas fit but i guess there's a twist at the end should, should i reveal it on here uh, I, I, I talk about it otherwise yeah i mean if that's what you gotta do talk about it so i guess if you don't want spoilers on there's no i in threesome move forward uh, a couple minutes here yeah <laughs> i you do want spoilers though so oh yeah i i want spoilers because uh you know i'm probably not going to seek this one out personally just just based on what i hear from you i think is yeah. enough to to kind of indicate where where my interest might lie well the whole thing's shot with iphones and so it's a series of interviews between the guy and supposedly his girlfriend but right at the end it reveals um auditions for actors to play his girlfriend <laughs> So, uh, it's just such manipulative bullshit on the audience and so self-serving for the character obviously this all technically probably happened in his relationship but he's playing it out with an actor so why would you watch this I, like once i think i appreciate like the attempt at transparency here like because at the same time you could just not show that like you could just hire an actress and not tell the audience that you did that but also yeah. that should be something up front like you know uh recreation in documentary is a very common practice you know it doesn't yeah. have to be the actual thing when it happened like you know this happens all the time in different ways and do you know you you, you do it in which you m create new material to represent what it is that you're recounting or going over or your subject hopefully that's matter. clear though right <laughs> like yeah like you usually establish that up front like sometimes there's even like you know blatant words on a screen that says this is a recreation you know uh, yeah. I so mean, you kind of do that at the end like to make your your audience invest in something and then pull the rug out from under them at the end uh feels very disingenuous and like you said manipulative i i can see definitely how that like really undermines any point you might have been trying to come across by just saying fooled you at yeah. the end <laughs> and it's not a good trick or something i mean there's a he started making the documentary when he was with the actual girl um, then she fell in love with someone else. So she didn't want to be a part of the documentary anymore. So he hired an actor to play her. But I think he labels himself here both as the victim and the aggressor. I mean, I, I think he becomes the aggressor once he establishes that he's fucked the audience over by the end. And uh, I think the whole film is about him being a victim. I, I think he set himself up in every way here. Do, do you think that the film gives you any kind of interesting insight to a uh, an open relationship like that no <laughs> i don't know what you could I, well, I think that. that's an interesting 
topic for a documentary because yeah, I do I think feel so. like that's kind of a, a a subject that a lot of people are you know ready to embrace or understand even and they have lots of preconceived notions about it and it's not that it can't work you know i'm aware of situations where it has worked for lots of people uh and so to talk about that in a serious manner you know i I bet there's even already a documentary about it that's probably lauded that we're just like entirely ignoring oh yeah so if if anyone knows please somebody like add us on twitter with this documentary that i'm sure does a much better job (laughs) uh as deflating as that was there's a worse documentary left (laughs) Oh boy, uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> There's uh, Rodney Asher, the guy who made, um, what was it, uh, Room 237, the Shining documentary. He made a glitch in the Matrix, which I saw at Sundance. So so just to kind of get this out, I think we went over this in the Shining episode we did. Oh, uh, we did? I, I hate that documentary. I hate <laughs> it so much. Uh, it's one of the worst things that uh, I've ever seen. Like I, I don't know if I've been angry in my life. I literally saw white flashes when I was watching that movie. <laughs> it was... It was the most enraging thing. Uh, so, so what's his latest about? It's even more enraging, I think. It's about uh, true stories and false realities. Um, he's using like VR puppetry over all his subjects. <laughs> they all look like dinosaurs and weird creatures. It's so what? hard to take seriously. Um, you think they're siding with like Elon Musk and being like a he's like the hero of the documentary, and then they're like, but maybe. Elon Musk lives in space. It's just such strange ideas about our reality and whether or not we're living in a matrix. I, oh my god, I, I can't handle this level of conspiracy. I think it's it's, it's the same thing. Like sounds like like the just unwillingness to engage with reality, and giving these voices to total crackpots. That was the the central problem to Room Two Thirty Seven. Just like giving validity to people who are so fucking deranged that they just like like they're literally going off on these not like like i literally can't engage with you if if you just have absolutely no connection to reality like you're just so invested in this crackpot conspiracy bullshit that like like not even like i i'm i would humor i would humor this idea that maybe there is a major but, but when you go on 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 these different tangents of like these conspiracies to have to like validate your points and dismiss like any and all facts just right. like out of hand without any engagement and to give these people such a, an uplifting voice, you know, and out to the world, you're just, you're feeding this even more. Oh my God. I'm just, I'm frustrated. Like hearing about it in concept, just in concept here. And yeah. I haven't even watched it and I'm not going to because I don't hate myself enough to Calvin. I don't hate myself enough to subject myself like you have. My eyes were so glazed over by the end. I don't feel like it had any real effect on me, but uh, I feel like every philosophical question about life is obviously worth asking. But if you do it in such a fractured simile of a simulation like this movie has, I don't think it means anything. I think you could, I think you could obscure your message so much through the form of your movie that it's not even worth the, uh, engaging with anymore. I, I'm curious. Did did people have this theory of that we live in a computer simulation <laughs> yes. before the film The Matrix? Because oh, no, like no. that's that seems so. to be like where this all kind of comes from, or at least where everyone's coming back to. At least that this well, is the film that gave it kind of some some credence or whatever. Well, Matrix is based on like Matrix theory, obviously. So I mean, like theorizing about it has always been out there in a sense. But I think like popular theory, no, I, I don't think. I don't think that was really in my world before Matrix was. 
Sure. Like I'm, I'm all for tackling themes of existentialism because that is like a, a genuine, like foreboding fear that I think a lot of us have and have to have to live with and such. But again, just to try and like explain it with like concrete facts that are completely made up, it just undercuts any kind of validity that the actual emotional concern and concepts yeah. have. I just really bad. Um, that's really all I got for docs, but I hope the the year can only get better from here. Yeah, well, uh, I'm glad that we uh, dived into the subject because we've at least uh, debunked the idea that there's no value in old films and that new movies <laughs> are the way of the future. Clearly, that's not true at all. And maybe so... go watch the Frank Oz one though, in and of itself on Hulu. Yeah, it's, it's I, by the way, fine. I just I, I want to note that uh, Frank Oz obviously did more than direct The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you know. He voices Yoda. He's he's the puppet here. He's he's Miss Piggy and Fozzie Bear as well. He's a big member of the Muppets. So, you know, I just I love that. That's the one thing that you hooked onto because oh, the know, Little Shop I, of Horrors. Oh, because yeah, I love yeah. Little Shop, and eventually I'll convince you to do a podcast on it. But I'd be fine with that. He's known for more famous things than that. In Absolutely. Case, in, uh, I just wanted the listeners to know that we do know what Frank Oz is known for. Yeah. What about Bob? <laughs> one of All the right. great bill murray contributions <laughs> shall we well, take a break and yeah let's take a break and come back to some old movies black and white forever <laughs> beauty in the black and white um... <laughs> every friday at three shadows escape from the factory Well, right. I, I was so surprised that you wanted to come on here and discuss a Disney movie. Um, I watched <laughs> no. it last night. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, one of my seminal childhood movies. Was, was that the movie you watched? I love uh, that uh, Disney went into the French culture. Uh, actually, uh, Calvin, I said that we I wanted to watch Beastly with you. You know, the 2011 teen you know, romance <laughs> film. I. We watched different movies. I guess we did. Well, uh, how about instead of those, why don't we talk about uh, the French adaptation, which we're both familiar with. Uh, I think people would like that better. Yeah, we're, we're bringing big Cocteau energy today. <laughs> <laughs> After Lubin with Lubitsch, big Cocteau energy is our new slogan. What are we going to do next? <laughs> <laughs> God. Uh, balls of Fire, uh, the podcast. <laughs> but yeah, uh, this is what... I think this is our third dip into French cinema, right? You're doctrinating me is more and more. I'm, that might be it. What we We've did? We've only Umbrella, done three. Umbrellas of Chabourg. We did Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, and now we're doing Big Cocteau Energy. Okay, we have, we have to get more in. Um, I'm sure eventually. we will. Look, this is this is some good steps in the right direction for me. Uh, you know, uh, who who usually does not want to venture outside my field of, you know, craggy old black and white Hollywood movies. I'm I'm here with my you know cocteau energy ready to go. I love Beauty and the Beast. I love our uh, La Belle et la Bête, as yes. as we should probably call it to differentiate it from the Disney film. Absolutely, um, but just sounds more French that way. I guess it's I I I went down my letterbox and I was logging all the movies that I thought I saw. <laughs> I 
I went and assigned numbers. Uh, I tried to make up for years of watching things. I was like, French Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, probably loved it. Uh, eight <laughs> out of ten. Drop that score in. I started the movie. I was like, I haven't seen this. It, it seems familiar, <laughs> but. Uh, I, I think it's funny for such a self-proclaimed you know francophile that uh i got to this before before you did it is surprising i i watched this first in late 2018 and uh i was i was thoroughly blown away by it uh maybe my favorite french film this, oh, this really? current moment maybe like between this and rafifi but I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go with this one because rafifi is from an american director so probably better to, to represent the country more wholeheartedly with a man like uh, Cocteau. I'm glad I went over it and that we got here because I can increase my score a little bit because this is a fantastic representation of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, maybe the best. Uh, I would say but... the best. Uh, I watched another one last year, the Czech movie. Um, uh, uh, 1978 Czech movie, Beauty and the Beast, which had really amazing creature design, but... Um, uh, Jiraj Hers. I'm sure that pronunciation is correct. <laughs> yeah, um, I think as as far as Beauty and the Beast adaptations go, this is kind of the the one for for lots of reasons. Uh, uh, we often think of the Disney film first, obviously as Americans. You yeah, know, it's kind of ingrained into us. But uh, it's surprising just how much of that film takes from Cocteau's film. You know, we could talk about various ways and. The, the deviations that Cocteau underwent with the story here that have now made it into the the, the legend of Beauty and the Beast. He defined a lot of the aspects of it with this film. I feel that I don't really know Beauty and the Beast outside its media representations. I've seen these three movies. I haven't read a story. Well, there, so so interesting things. I'll just go into a couple things right now. So uh, one of the things that Cocteau adds here that is not in in the the original story, from my recollection, is uh, the 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 hunter. You know, uh, being kind of this representation, this alternative to the beast. You know, and and so the juxtaposition. So Gaston in the the Disney film is is a direct descendant from uh, Jean Maurice's character. Uh, in this film mm-hmm. uh, the design of the creature is heavily you know descended from this uh, more cat-like version that we get here uh, typically uh, in, at least in the old legends and stuff uh, the beast had a, a, a stag head okay. um, so not at all like a like a beast in how we think of it you know in the Disney way as well such so it was definitely more of like a you know forest animal kind of interpretation and uh, Cocteau decided to eschew that entirely and he went in a completely new direction with this more feline interpretation which of course you can see plenty of influence in then with the, the Disney version in particular but they also take inspiration from lots of other animals uh, you know to kind of make this kind of buffalo-y horned uh, you know part deer thing that the beast is it's he's, he's a really cool conglomeration in the disney version but you know also very unique visions here and the cocktail one is a uh, stunningly beautiful i think it's, it's kind of hard to get around that being the centerpiece of the film it is so gorgeous i mean immediately gorgeous and it does a lot with the camera to uh, create fantasy um and kind of enliven its world <laughs> Yeah, that's, I think that's the kind of big Cocteau stamp on the film. Uh, you know, I also watched Orpheus to kind of prepare for this conversation again, which is another one of his big kind of trademark films that he did a little later after. And nobody implemented 
backwards footage like Cocteau did. And there's so many instances in both films of, of that being the case, just to add this surreal quality to a lot of the environment here. Like a lot of movements are just like, film you know and then and they're they're shown backwards uh obviously the in, in beauty and the beast uh the the famous one is really like that first entrance into the castle when mm. the father is you know stumbled upon this place and as he's walking down the corridor these candelabras with human arms just light up and, and it's incredible it's, it's like you know this amazingly ethereal sequence and, and it's just done very simply like they just they shot the sequence backwards and they would blow out the candles as they passed by and so when you ran the film in reverse it looked like the the flames were coming up on them some simple trick but it's just so magnificent in its simplicity i think yeah like the best visual effect just like the arms also coming with the candle oh, and, again just these these bizarre surreal touches that you know of the whole castle again it's a it's a magnificent realization of this magical place there's faces in the walls everywhere yeah. that move doors like the doors talk to to bell and these interesting interpretations where the things come to life i can't remember if that's also something that starts with cocteau these these ideas of you know a human embodiment in the objects of the mansion but obviously you can see how it kind of echoes then down into later interpretations I mean, it takes it to another level of the castle being alive that like these people that must have lived there or been around or it's almost like they're embodied in the castle and coming out of the table and from the walls. Mm -hmm. Well, and the interesting thing is that like, unlike in like the Disney adaptation, for example, the film doesn't really offer much of an explanation for the magic uh, no songs, or, or the powers. Yeah. It's, it's really just like, I think the beast at one point says uh, that I have these various objects that give me my magical powers and you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm there for it. And he's got this secret, you know, like garden shed or whatever where he ha houses all this treasure and that's like the the center of his magic powers but as far as for where the magic comes from or why he's a beast you know it's not always i don't think it's, it's spelled out as clearly as it is, but you don't care you don't you don't you really don't need that like the lack of explanation is is all part of the mystique and the lore and the fantasy of it that makes it all kind of come together in this ethereal way i think so beautifully it starts at at the very beginning with his disclaimer that um, he's like, as a child, you could believe in like smoke coming from beast claw. And he goes into mm -hmm. some of the specifics of what a child can believe. And then um, asks us to believe in those four magic words, the open sesame of a child um, uh, once upon a time. And uh, from there, we we're kind of willing to suspend all this belief because we know what kind of story it will be. And we don't need that, uh, that disnified um, yeah. idea of uh, everything making sense. That, well, that and, and it opens with that kind of interesting breaking of the barrier between audience as well because it's literally Cocteau there writing out the credits <laughs> on a, a board and then you yeah, have the chalkboard the you have the clapboard there literally to show you this is a movie we're making right. we're, we're presenting you a piece of fiction here i think that's and so you, important as the audience are you know buying into this and choosing to engage by sitting down for this movie that's and that's really what the it outlines there in the beginning which again you we don't think about as something that we do as an audience often but it does it's a nice reminder particularly <laughs> in a case which requires the uh, such a, a suspension of disbelief here um you know to, to have that kind of reminder and uh, while i was sitting with the film i was reflecting over it again i was thinking how like fantasy is such an uncommon genre for the 1940s uh you know i think overall uh this is like one of the most fantastical like uh, in terms of american cinema i think the only equivalent you can think of really has this kind of 
ambition and you know uh otherworldliness is like the wizard of oz yeah uh, otherwise yeah. it's really like just like small tweaks like this is the this came out the same year that it's a wonderful life did which has like this, this very minute like fantastical edge with the angels and such but that's like it like that's still like one of the the more fantastical you know films aside from like what like the universal monster movies that i might classify as as being you know fantastical in terms from old hollywood cinema yeah you have to look at newer surrealists almost you have to get to like lynch and look at people that are kind of employing these same techniques differently um that then of course outside america you can find a lot more examples of the czechs and uh Boonwell and um a few others playing with surrealism that that really mm-hmm. matter Right, but as far as like even just strict fantasy goes, I think that yeah. it's it's very uncommon. Particularly one that so wholeheartedly embraces the genre like this does. Like it's really a, a beautiful, you know, like uh, you know, transportive fantasy picture. Like, I think that's I, why it's so important that it formalizes the contract with the audience. It feels like we're signing a contract and that he's writing it literally on like the chalkboard and and we're like yeah. entering the movie set. Like, I think aside from, like, the, the silent film era, like, you know, between that and this, I don't think there's anything equivalent in terms of, like, this kind of expressive fantasy quality. Um, and, and I think it's interesting because uh, I, I got to look this up. I, I know the Criterion release has this, but Philip Glass did an opera to accompany the film. Oh, really? Stri- stripped of dialogue, soundtrack entirely, and composed wow. like an entire opera to complement the, the visuals of the film. And the Criterion disc has a release with that. I, I'm just like, I gotta get my hands on that now because this is the kind of visually expressive film that seems perfectly complemented for, for such an accompaniment. I think it would almost work entirely with the with the musical score, especially from someone like Glass. I could see that being ethereal and interesting. Yeah, and and the musical score provided for the film as is currently from uh, uh, Georges Arik, um, I think is so terrific in terms of complementing the visuals of the film, and it and it uplifts that ethereal you know fantasy quality of it. Like it really gives credence to what you're seeing at the same time. This very angelic, otherworldly choir you know in the background, these harps that you hear constantly throughout it. It's it's really like a perfect marriage of image and sound at all times. It doesn't quite even begin after that, like the Disney version. It's um, not quite a Bell Bonjour moment. It's uh, <laughs> she's kind of doing all the housework that her uh, other family neglects while while her father's out on a on a boat. Yeah. I think that's an important distinction to make from the Disney version as well. Is that like some other grim fairy tales and such? At the same time, you know, it's it's got the the evil stepsisters plot added to this as well. That's not in the Disney version, but it's here. And so she's like, uh, she's considered the the ugly sister. So she has to do all the house chores and stuff. And but you know, then she's brought together with the the true hideous beast of the film. And you know, they're supposed to bring out the like her real beauty but you know they always other characters are talking about how beautiful she actually is and so together they kind of give each other the the confidence and recognition of their you know their true inner qualities as well as those on their exterior because again like i think one thing you see complimented throughout is that you know the growth of her love for the beast not just as a person on the inside isn't crucial but is you know an external being as well that that arc is so important that their relationship like if that 
wasn't concrete and didn't make sense, I think the film wouldn't work quite as well. But because they do such a great job laying out the relationship with the beast and their growth as, as a relationship, that, then you're invested the whole way through. Whereas, like, even, like, the Disney one, it just starts out, like, she likes books. She's bored of this provincial life. I mean, yeah. like, she's just kind of... Um, in like the leisure class and just kind of bored of, of her village. Whereas here it feels like there's a real impetus for her to uh, go accept this challenge uh, where, where her dad like goes and collects the rose and then is uh, challenged to come back and replace himself for, for death. He offers up his daughter. Yeah. He, he, that's the thing he's forced to give. It, it, it's kind of interesting. Uh, again, in, in a kind of childhood fairy tale kind of way, the, the, very odd arbitrary rules of things right. where the beast comes out and he catches them and he's like you know well now i have to kill you or <laughs> you can give me one of your three daughters yeah <laughs> Not like and it's just it's and that's all like in the same sentence like okay that's that's very odd but all right <laughs> sure. like, you you have 15 minutes to die or uh maybe i'll take or, one of your daughters that you're collecting yeah. this rose for Go go away for a few days and then come back. I trust that you'll come back. Here's a magic horse. Uh, make sure you do. <laughs> and the horse. There's some weird arbitrary things like that, but again, I think it's all part of the the fantasy of it. Yeah. it. It really kind of does get a pass. Like some of the more absurd or like nonsensical rules of of the world, uh, I think they totally work. Um, but one thing I wanted to, to highlight as well in terms of especially that first confrontation is that how slick the pacing of the film is it's only like an hour and a half movie and, yeah, it's, and it's, it's not long it's it's very well like told like the story is metered out incredibly well that's that first encounter at the beast castle where you really get all the serious things happens about 15 minutes into the movie after you get all the important character stuff set up and the conflicts and all that so and i, I think that all works really well in the beginning where you, you set up the sisters and you get this sense of the the world the forest and whatnot the use of actual locations is really fantastic it, it gives you know credence to the environment of the film this you know kind of like uh you know like 1600s you know fairy uh, forest or whatever yeah um i think it really does sell like the enchant forest just like as they're like coming through and the the brush just like separates yep. and of course comes back down i mean every time we enter the castle we're given such an image it really is otherworldly, and and that is the thing that Cocteau is always so brilliant at. Again, like in Orpheus, the best things in that movie are the interpretations of the the underworld and how just differently things operate. With again, just mm -hmm. the simple things as like making people float across you know environments, or you know having like this this disconnect from the background with backwards footage and stuff or projected you know backgrounds and things. Just these very small, simple techniques that are utilized in such a breathtaking way to really give you a sense of the unreal. Absolutely. There's uh, so much care in the design of the beast that uh, as she describes him, he can either look noble or infirm or that he has uh, such range in that costume that he's able to portray different things. Like he, he's feeling different things and... Um, he carries himself. He has a different countenance when he when he appears at different points in the castle, or when he arrives to the seven p.m. dinner, asking for a hand every night. Um, there's mm -hmm. so much magic in him too. Yeah, and and I think a lot of that as well is due to uh, Jean Maurice's performance uh, as, as the beast. There, he's so 
like he's got this great voice for the character as well mm-hmm. and his great interpretation of it and and this different twist on the beast in that he's this very like self-loathing character he's yeah. so like resigned to his his uh, beastliness and his you know horrendous nature in a way that he like can't can't live with it necessarily and he only finds the joy in life and the admiration of uh, another's beauty which is why he's you know the roses are the most precious thing to him uh, you know, and, and that's how he, you know, is, is essentially keeping himself alive is by, you know, finding value in the beauties of life that he himself can't project. It's so smart. Like he has like the smoking claw, but then he has a transportive glove that's used for magic. Like all the pieces of his, you know, all the all the items that are related to him are important and thematic. I just, yeah, I, I love all of the magical things again even if they, they don't always have like a direct line of logic i think that's yeah. what's great about them is they're not like here wear this glove it'll take you anywhere you want <laughs> here's a horse tell it where you want to go and it'll go there here you know there's this mirror you know you look into it and it'll show you what you you know need to see uh one of my favorite moments like that is when she has the beads and her sisters try to handle it and it it turns into like weeds <laughs> Yeah, oh, and it's such a great, like, just in, in a single shot, just yeah. really well done. They hand it, it's like, oh, it turns into this, and, and you they drop it, and but they drop it out of the frame, and then someone throws in the, the real beads from off screen there, and it's, right. it, it's all done in a swift motion, and it works so well. Yeah, it's just that handoff, it, it establishes so much, too. Or, or how about when they look in the mirror, and they look like a monkey? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> also a good effect. Mm-hmm. Just yeah, again, the the very simple surrealist tricks that Cocteau employs are the the most majestic execution of them by by any filmmaker. I think, you know, uh, he those unique perspectives on on special effects are are entirely individual to him. It makes me wish we hadn't only gotten so many of the Disney variations on these. It, it reminds me how much more room there is for something like Frozen. Uh, to tell the real the real story behind like that fairy tale, how dark it actually gets. Um, it's kind of a shame that we have the, again, the homogenized version of everything now. Uh, and, and that we don't get filmmakers like Cocteau that explore a little deeper. Like we have Del Toro maybe like a, around the fringes Del, of that Del, right now. Del Toro, by the way, huge fan of Cocteau's Beauty and the I can Beast. imagine, yeah. Yeah. I see so you much can, of you it. You can see that inspiration just drip into all of his work. Absolutely. You, you get that with his fascination with the monsters and uh, having a respect and a, an idealization about them having like deep feelings to in all of his movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's all there. And it's just such a, a, a beautiful film again, like the, the costume design, of course, of the beast is great. The vision of him is execution. Like, e- even if you somehow found like the uh, fairy tale aspects you know rudimentary and perfunctory you know or whatever just like very straightforward you know child's fable stuff blah 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 whatever like you can't help but admire the artistry that went into the realization you know from from the design of the the beast himself the execution the vision of it like cocteau's implementation of special effects to realize this otherworldly realm it's all like you know transcendent of even anyone else attempting to do you know similar works uh and and even like stuff like uh, i can't even think of anything in like an animation format that manages to uh, achieve the same kind of ethereal aspects that this film does yeah um as we talked about maybe like cartoon saloons like trying the most right now to to tell new fairy tales but but it's not like this 
using filmmaking techniques to kind of break the rules of reality, I yeah. think, is, is some of the most interesting things filmmakers can do that they don't. Like, generally, we just defer to reality, like the camera is a reflection of reality in so much of it, and we, and we adhere to that. And again, not that it's a bad interpretation, it's just like the normal one. So when filmmakers mm -hmm. use the tools of editing and you know special effects and doing things that you can't see in reality or that can't be achieved otherwise you know i think that's that's some of the best things that cinema can do i think with your preference for like illusionary cinema that, yeah. that really creates <laughs> yeah. a new image this is one of the most of that this absolutely is a great example of it's that. based on my taste it is not at all shocking <laughs> that cocteau is is definitely a, a, a big name for me <laughs> i mean even my preference for realism and grit, I feel like I have to defer to that this is creating such a magical image that that I have to buy into it because it's mm -hmm. it's vital and it's so inventive. You you might like Orpheus as well. Then I think what Orpheus does that's different from this is that it takes the the legend, the mythic, and applies it to the modern. Okay. Because it's a it's a twist on modern things. There's lots of influence there, but it still has all the cocktoiness to it, you know, and all the the magical ethereal aspects and stuff. It even has gloves. It has magic gloves too. Of course. Um, yeah, I really loved it. I I don't have a ton to say. I find it I'm, very. I'm glad and at least. I'm glad for once that I could show you a French <laughs> film. That feels like a very special thing to do on, on the podcast here. I don't know how many more times it's going to happen. I Yeah, it's weird to find one that I don't have a ton of reference for within French cinema because I, I think of like donkey skin or something as like my, my next logical step. Uh, I, I think that's the other thing as well, that in terms of what we think of as French cinema, this yeah. is a lot different even though it is exceedingly French um, mm. because we're, we're much more used to kind of like the, the new wave interpretation. It's very stripped down more, you know, uh, uh, you know, less glamorous view of the world. Right. Getting away from literature and toward yeah. reality. And this is like the, the entire opposite end. This is like opulence to, to the extreme uh, in, in terms of interpretation here and, you know, completely away from grounded reality in any sense. So, uh, you know, thematically, it's not the same as what we usually think of with French cinema, but it's it's definitely very French in terms of its presentation and its, you know, subject and themes and such. It's nice to watch one that sits a little bit outside my interest, but uh, really draws me in. I mean, I can't deny it. This is a fantastic movie, a gorgeous movie. Yeah, and I hope this uh, motivates more people to see it as well, because it is just such a, I think it's, a, it's such a gem of cinema that uh, is not one you, we, we typically see from this period. Like I said, it's otherworldly in a way that most films wouldn't be until decades later, I think, like similar ta tackling of subjects, you know, uh, I don't think we saw films that were this majestic for quite some time. Really a special movie. Thanks for showing me. Yeah, I'm so glad. Um Speaking of uh, films, uh, I'm showing you. I think yeah, we got another next one next week. week. Uh, next week, we have one we might both be the most on the same page we've been for a while. So uh, for a long time. Not that we're yeah. not usually, like, even with this one, we're pretty, but we're usually uh, like half a number off or so. We, so. we both love next week's movie, and you just watched Are you going to be rewatching it, by the way? Or? No, uh, I, I'm just going to keep the one watch. I wanted a okay. Blu ray. We'll talk about it next week. But. Yeah, definitely. But uh, please tune in for our third 40s film in a row <laughs> um howard hawks's ball of fire which uh for avid listeners will remember was my favorite film i saw last year i'm looking forward to it 
yeah uh so tune in next week for that there's going to be a super exciting discussion uh make sure you as always to check out our website the twingeeks.com for our latest reviews retrospectives and features you can follow us on twitter as well at the twin geeks and individually at calvin kempf and at david a punch don't forget to check out our sister video game show the daydream cast with pavos and brogan available on apple Podcasts, spotify and anywhere else podcasts are played leave a review and a rating if you can and we'll see you next week for another conversation on classic and contemporary cinema Faire aussi qu'un homme laid devienne beau.